Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Sternova Strategic Edge, a bi-weekly audio business program where we explore emerging strategies in strategic innovation from the edges of the business ecosystem. In this shorter companion program to our bi-weekly Stranova interview podcast, we explore the implications of some of the newest strategic trends in business from all over the world and present them every other week, alternating with our regular interview series. So, thanks for tuning in, and let's get started with this episode of Stranova Strategic Edge. We in the developed countries love our cars. The sound of an engine starting up, getting in with our families to head off for a day at the beach or at an amusement park, or even riding in comfort by ourselves to and from our offices and air conditioning, listening to our satellite radio programs or iPods, and without a care in the world. The problem with this is that all these cars, in the industries that manufactured the cars, that run the amusement park, and even the companies that make the satellite radios and the iPods work, run on oil. And we're running out of it, faster than we seem to be implementing useful options to any of it. As just one measure of how fast the oil is being depleted, consider that in 2004 it was estimated by IHS Energy, an oil and gas information group in England, that we have around 1.1 trillion barrels of oil in known or proven reserves. Houston's Oil and Gas Journal added in Canada's oil sands, which are trickier to harvest but do still represent available oil, to bring the total to 1.266 trillion barrels available to harvest. Sounds like a lot of oil, doesn't it? Not really. In the same year as these calculations were made, the United States Geological Survey estimated that all of us on this planet are using around 30 billion barrels of oil per year. So if both of these numbers are right, we have around 42 years of oil left to harvest on this planet. Let's let that sink in for a minute. 42 years of oil left. How old are you? How old are your children? Add 42 to either of those numbers and imagine that when you reach those birthdays, there will no longer be any oil left to practically scavenge anywhere. It is true that these sort of numbers are indeed highly speculative, and even more so highly dependent on how the technology of harvesting oil changes and where we attempt to explore for oil. As one example of what this can mean, when I was at Silicon Graphics, one energy industry source we were working with told me that by linking improved visualization technologies for seeking out harvestable oil more accurately with new drilling and oil gathering processes, the estimated number of barrels of oil that might be harvested may have increased by as much as a factor of three from earlier numbers. So, great news. Maybe the number isn't 42 years, it's 126 years. Maybe only our great-grandchildren will have to deal with it now. Well, we do have to deal with it. And the good news is that a combination of businesses, governments, and activist organizations are indeed actively working to create change in both how to fuel those cars we love and to create alternatives to the energy we're already using. This episode of Stranova Strategic Edge will explore some of what's being considered in this area, and by the end of the podcast, suggest not only where business may see new profits in this crisis, but also some, we hope, 
revolutionary ideas that you might want to consider for your existing enterprise to help deal with this truly global challenge. And yes, it is most of those of you listening who have the most to offer here, because it's in the developed countries that most of the gasoline consumption is happening. The Energy Information Administration of the U.S. government points out in its most recent online reports that, in the U.S. and Canada, the average consumption of oil is around three gallons per person per day. The rest of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries, known as the OECD for short, use less than half that at 1.4 gallons per person per day. And outside these regions, the average per capita consumption is only 0.2 gallons, or less than 10% of what we use here in North America. A separate study calculates that we in the United States spend some $1.25 billion a day on gasoline alone. We are gluttons in far more than just fast food, it appears. But before we get into some of the solutions being proposed, as in many cases, it's good to consider a bit about how we ended up in the current mess. Let's start with oil itself. Oil itself has historically been a pretty cheap commodity and has stayed that way for quite some time. In constant current U.S. dollars, the price per barrel of oil was just under $19 a barrel all the way from the 1880s until the early 1970s. During this time, the U.S. transportation industry itself, which started out through the first half of the 20th century emphasizing coal-powered and steam-driven railroad travel, grew significantly. The invention of the gas-powered automobile itself also took the country, and the world as a whole, by storm, adding to the freedom with which people were able to move around from place to place. Some of that storm was driven by the personal desire to drive, but we should not underestimate the impact of corporations betting their own future on the growth of the automobile and their own understanding of how to manage shifts of the existing business ecosystems to fuel, shall we say, their own growth. In the 1920s, for example, General Motors began a systemic campaign to drive American streetcar lines out of business, and did so both with political pressure and by actually buying up streetcar lines, which they then dismantled, in cities such as New York and Portland. In 1938, GM and two other companies with a vested interest in the growth of the automobile business, Standard Oil and Firestone Tire and Rubber, formed a company called Pacific City Lines, which spread what GM had started to eventually buy out the tracks of and dismantle lines in over 20 cities, including San Jose, Stockton, and Fresno in California. Over time, and in spite of a federal investigation to stop what were correctly labeled as illegal conspiracies to restrain trade, over 100 streetcar systems were removed nationwide by 1950. As cars became not only desired but now even necessary, the demand for improved roads to drive on was increasing, a demand pushed for now both by consumers as well as the corporations that would benefit from the road system expansion. With the two terrifying world wars and a challenging Korean war behind it, and America ready to spread its industrial wings again and expand as an economic power, the planning for such an expansion was launched. And so, in 1956, in a bold decision, the U.S. Congress, strongly supported by then-President Dwight Eisenhower, passed the Interstate Highway Act. As the largest single public works project ever launched by any country, the interstate highway system was now started with the goal of creating over 41,000 miles of divided, limited-access, and multi-lane highways connecting virtually every middle-class car-driving individual within the nation.
These freeways, lobbied for heavily by the automobile and oil industries, single-handedly launched the mass oil consumption boom we have been experiencing all the way to the present day here in the United States. Similar explosions of roads were also built elsewhere around the globe, but with nowhere near as dominant effect as here. Instead of expanding mass transit systems nationwide, something that was indeed on the list of options being considered when the 1956 law went into effect, we as a people voted for our individual freedom. After all, gas was cheap, it would be here forever, and there were no consequences. Or at least we thought. While we were pouring down concrete to support that decision, in quantities that exceeded the amount needed to build the entire city of Los Angeles several hundred times over, according to one recent analysis, a new way of living was being born. We were rapidly moving out of our city centers and into the suburbs, near to but out of the hustle-bustle dirt and obvious smog of the cities. We still were closer to or inside the cities, but we were fine with commuting to get back and forth. While we here in the United States didn't quite understand all the implications of our decisions, overseas a few others realized at least one form of opportunity that was now becoming available. In 1960, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Companies, or OPEC, was formed, with the objective of working together to manage oil from a more systemic and global perspective, all with the idea of improving the stability of prices for, and therefore the long-term profitability of, the valuable assets these now 11 countries control. In classic economic fashion, they plan to regulate those prices by agreeing on production rates in tandem with a detailed analysis of world demand at any given time. Countries all over the world realized some of the power these countries held when, on October 17, 1973, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Countries announced that they would no longer ship petroleum to countries that had supported Israel in its Yom Kippur War conflict with Syria and Egypt, with the U.S. and Netherlands specifically targeted. The rapid shutdown in any new oil from these countries triggered the long gas lines many of us remember throughout the world at that time. In parallel, the oil-producing cartel engineered a quadrupling of oil prices that eventually caused average gas prices in the United States, for example, to rise to, in 2006, $2.73 a gallon in March 1981. That eventually dramatically increased prices on virtually every consumable item, which in turn kicked inflation into high gear and a dramatic downturn in economies around the globe. Worldwide, people in the developed countries realized how much they had grown to depend on oil and tried many steps to deal with it. Countries such as Japan responded with their dramatic introduction of much smaller and highly efficient cars and took their market share to a new level that has grown only ever larger over the past quarter century. The United States responded with price controls on oil that, unfortunately, made old oil far less expensive and therefore actually helped drain our existing reserves. It also implemented the 55 miles per hour speed limit because cars driving on highways still run more efficiently at that lower speed than at higher ones. And many of us here in the United States still remember President Jimmy Carter encouraging us to lower our thermostats in the winter to 68 degrees Fahrenheit and to wear sweaters rather than just turn up the heat even more in the winter. People were talking alternative energy sources and tax breaks were being put in place to support solar power panels, for example, being installed in homes just to heat the hot water for showers. Laws were also passed 
that required automakers to accelerate their development of more fuel-efficient cars, and the automakers did follow. That was 25 years ago, of course, and through a prudent assessment that too much pressure on the supply side of the equation from the oil producers was not good for anyone, as well as through active negotiations by the oil consumers, new deals were cut and the oil prices dropped worldwide. As recently as 2001, for example, gas in the United States was back down to the same $2,006 price it was back in 1970, around $1.50 a gallon on average. The U.S. government had backed off requiring as significant average fuel efficiency standard raises for cars as it had initially mandated, since, after all, gas was so inexpensive again and all seemed at peace in the world, more or less. Cars were also getting bigger and more powerful, with sport utility vehicles and minivans becoming some of the hottest selling parts of the market. The Hummer H1, an odd consumer passenger vehicle that was built on the same platform as its military ancestors originally introduced in the Desert Storm conflict with Iraq some years earlier, was selling briskly since its introduction in 1996, even though it could travel only at a rate of 10 miles per gallon of gas. Times have changed again, however, in our post-9-11 world, and gas prices are back up again. Regular gas prices here in California, for example, are now running an average of $3.37 a gallon as of May 18, 2006. That may not be a great deal more expensive than the March 1981 previous peak of $2.73 nationwide in constant dollars. But what makes this one so much of a crisis for many is similar to what made the 1981 one such a problem, that the price which had once been much lower had risen so quickly. Prices worldwide are, of course, affected as well, and it's important to remember that even though the consumer prices for gas are already higher outside the U.S., the increases still sting just the same. And just like in the situation 25 years ago, it's triggering inflation and other related impacts around the world. With every crisis comes opportunity, of course, and here I'm not just talking about the political posturing that now flows far more easily from the television than crude from the pipelines. What exactly are government and business cooking up to deal with both the increased prices and, lest we forget, the very short-term existence of what right now are a few trillion very special barrels of oil in reserve? One such area is the increased focus on alternative sources of oil that might be harvested so that we can, literally, squeeze every last drop from what's out there. As you might expect, one of the first things the U.S. government has attempted in this area is to resurrect the Arctic drilling initiative in northern Alaska, which environmentalists have successfully pushed back for the time being on the grounds that it would have significant ripple effects on the environment that should not be tolerated. And as recently as this week, the U.S. Congress also considered bills that would have expanded oil drilling off the coasts of both Florida and California. They seem to have abandoned those thoughts for the time being, but desperation has a habit of changing minds, so we should be prepared for the debate to come live again in the not-too-distant future. A second move is a business one, to take advantage of what looks like long-term price increases that may stick this time, to consider looking into new ways to get oil, this time from places that were decidedly uneconomic before. One of these is the category of oil deposits, sometimes called tar sands, which are also sometimes referred to as oil sands or bituminous sands. They are a mixture of clay, sand, water, and bitumen, a semi-solid and degraded form of oil that does not flow towards a well and must be extracted rather than drilled.
The two largest sources of this oil known around the world are in Canada's Alberta region and in Venezuela. By using steam marinating of the oil sands to force the crude oil out of the sands, it is estimated that Canada may have as much as 200 billion barrels of oil that are technically recoverable from its fields in Athabasca, Wabasca, Cold Lake, and Peace River. Though the economics of extracting these reserves are still to be proven, exploration and exploitation of these fields are in high gear. French oil giant Total SA and ConocoPhillips are combining forces to turn this into a major enterprise with expectations to have as many as 27,000 barrels of oil a day coming out of the Alberta sands by 2007 and as high as 200,000 barrels a day not long afterwards. There are, unfortunately, serious environmental consequences of many of these moves. Besides continuing to feed our hunger for oil and the global pollution that comes with it, alternative extraction methods such as these also generate large quantities of toxic liquid wastes. Even the Canadian Energy Board, which obviously has an interest in seeing these tar sand projects continued, is openly heavily concerned about how to reclaim the waste out of the water before it permanently pollutes the groundwater systems around them. So, what other options are there for dealing with the challenges ahead of us? One is encouraging dramatic improvements in the efficiency with which our automobiles use gasoline through a combination of measures. For business, the best bet right now is on combined gas-electric hybrid vehicles, which store energy while driving or coasting in battery systems that can kick in instead of using gas the whole time. Toyota's Prius, a midsize sedan with 55 miles per gallon efficiency and 89% less fuel emissions, is the market leader right now and, along with a Honda Insight, pretty much launched this new market category to the world a few years ago. Rounding out the types of hybrid cars available are, from Honda, the Accord and the Civic, from Toyota, the Camry sedan, the Highlander SUV, and its Lexus subsidiaries 400h SUV, the Ford Escape SUV, the Mercury Mariner SUV, and General Motors Silverado and Sierra hybrid trucks. For government, the expectation is that laws will be passed very soon once again, accelerating the gas mileage efficiency averages in all cars sold in the United States. We can also expect increasing tax breaks for buying radically improved mileage cars with new technology, such as the hybrid vehicles mentioned above. As an illustration of how this might make a difference, if we were to increase the average fuel efficiency to 33 miles per gallon, or 14 kilometers per liter, the U.S. alone could save as much as 2 million barrels of oil a day. In addition, my guess is that we will soon, once again, be considering lowering our U.S. maximum speed limit to 55 miles per hour, where cars still run more efficiently than they do at 70 miles per hour and up. Cars running at the higher speeds run hotter, have higher tire resistance, wheel-bearing friction, and air drag than ones running at lower speeds. One estimate is that cars cruising along at 55 miles per hour have as much as a 25% higher fuel efficiency than ones zooming along at 75 miles per hour. Another push is to develop alternative forms of fuel that can power our automobiles, again for the goal of decreasing the drain on oil reserves worldwide. Perhaps the solution getting the most press coverage in this area is the use of ethanol which in a very promising form is actually technically known as bioethanol because it is extracted from renewable resources such as sugar or corn. It's already used in many areas throughout the world for fuel, including here in the United States, and automobile engines are already engineered for the most part 
to use blends of as much as 10% ethanol and 90% gasoline. Engines are being re-engineered to use richer blends with more ethanol in the mix, and tax breaks are already in place to encourage the use of ethanol blends. The ethanol tax subsidy, in fact, runs around 51 cents a gallon, and one of the bigger beneficiaries of this benefit is Archer Daniels Midlands, or ADM Corporation. ADM owns seven ethanol plants and has a production capacity of over 1 billion gallons of ethanol per year right now. Regardless of the benefit these renewable sources might provide, however, ethanol is both expensive to produce currently, and it is estimated by one source that energy independence for the U.S. would take all the land in the continental U.S. and Alaska, and 50% more, to grow all the renewable energy crops for ethanol we'd need for such a goal. Hydrogen and solar energy are also touted as potential automobile fuel solutions and, although these may come to pass in some significant way in the future, it's still, well, in the future. And it may be that we have to make other questionable compromises to make these things happen, such as reinvesting in nuclear power to actually separate the hydrogen from oxygen and water to create the hydrogen fuel that we are not very willing to consider. It's a tough problem, this one, and as you might have guessed, I'm not sure that any of these traditional lines of thinking are going to make enough of a difference fast enough to truly deal with this effectively. So, are there non-traditional lines of thinking available? To me, perhaps the most promising is also the most challenging all at the same time. And that is for us to radically consider a major new way in the way we live and work. The root of this concept is deceptively simple, which is that rather than simply find ways to increase our fuel efficiency, that we dramatically change our need to drive. To illustrate just a few ideas along this line, consider what might happen if your company were to make it possible, perhaps encouraged along the way by appropriate tax incentives, for the norm of work life to be that you worked out of your home as much as four days a week out of five in the work week. I'm not talking simple telecommuting where a sizable though small percentage of the workforce works from home. Here I'm suggesting something even more significant, which would have as much as four-fifths of all office-based work people in a company not have to commute 80% of the time. Technology is growing to make this possible already via high-speed network connections and online free audio and video conferencing capabilities. And if people can't work in their homes because of lack of space, privacy, and or equipment, what about encouraging the installation of virtual offices that could be built in towns away from the main plant, where multiple companies could use the sites together as a telecommuting location? Could government get involved by, for example, helping create such facilities through revenue sharing in local communities throughout whichever nation you live in? The ripple effects would be significant with such an approach. People would be closer to home, and local communities would grow and benefit. Large plants would be less necessary, utilizing our remote access technologies to manage more and more activities locally. People would live closer to their families and be more involved with them on a daily basis. Plus, there would be more disposable income for all because less money was being spent both on gasoline and for auto maintenance expenses, which in turn should help drive other economic improvements. One criticism of this that I'm sure some will bring up is that there is nothing to substitute with the in-person connection that right now is hard to replace by phone or video conference. I agree with that in much the same way that it's been discovered that even though buying books online may be efficient and less expensive, people still want to browse in a bookstore to such a significant extent that only around 10% of book sales in the U.S. have moved from brick-and-mortar places to the Internet. 
And besides throwing out the obvious that this should represent a great business opportunity for the innovators out there to develop even better ways of creating online community and improving the quality and availability of high-resolution video conferencing for the masses, I'd also suggest that we really don't have any choice but to change the way that we work and live if we are going to evolve past the coming scarcity of oil in the world. Because what we have is not just an energy crisis, but an even bigger crisis of energy to truly try something radically different and innovate on a grand scale to make such a difference. We at Stranova are very interested in hearing your thoughts on these very important issues, and especially so for new ideas you may have on what strategic innovations to suggest to our audience in this area. Please weigh in by sending us a note on our blog at blog.stranova.com or call us via Skype on our Stranova comment phone line by clicking on the link on our homepage. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. If you're interested in ideas like this to rebuild the regenerative and strategic innovation capacity of your own business, we at Stranova would like to help. With over 30 years leading strategic innovation in businesses from high-tech to nonprofit, we know we can help you with everything from product family development to the full strategic reinvention of your corporation. If you're interested, please contact us at ideas at sternova.com. If you have comments on this week's show or suggestions for topics or guests for future shows, please contact us by email at ideas at sternova.com at our Sternova comment line at 1-408-849-4394 or via Skype by clicking on the link on our homepage. You can also join in our conversation by connecting with us on our Sternova blog by clicking the link on our homepage or going directly to blog.stranova.com. We look forward to your thoughts and the growing dialogue we're building on the intersection of strategy and innovation. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson, and this is Brad Redderson thanking you for joining us this time at Stranova Strategic Edge.